wait a minute, everybody got up at the same time, got in their cars at the same time, and then drove in the same direction? That's nuts. It's time! Work! Play! I want to connect the listeners to the best of the best. Welcome to the Evolved Broker Podcast. I'm your host, Pat Costello, the co-founder and principal at Evolve MGA. Our mission for the podcast is to bring the insurance industry the best of the best. My guest today is a New York Times futurist. His name is Michael Rogers. He attended Stanford University and also went through the Stanford Business School Executive Program. I decided to have him on because I'm extremely interested in his thoughts on the future of the insurance industry. Michael began his career as a writer for Rolling Stone and went on to co-found Outside Magazine. He then launched Newsweek's technology column, winning numerous journalism awards, including a national headliner award for coverage of the Chernobyl meltdown. Michael is a regular guest on radio and television, including Good Morning America, The Today Show, PBS, CNN, and The History Channel. He just completed two years as the futurist in residence for the New York Times and just released his new book, Email from the Future, Notes from 2084. Please download, subscribe, and leave a review on whatever platform you are listening on and feel free to reach out to me at Pat at evolvedbrokerpodcast.com with any comments or suggestions for the podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by First Insurance Funding. First is the leading premium finance company in insurance and is known throughout the industry for their personalized service and quote flexibility. If you're tired of sending quote requests for smaller premiums to multiple companies, not leaving enough time to negotiate larger opportunities, then choose First as your primary financing source and experience the first difference today. Without further ado, here's Michael. Michael, welcome to the Evolved Broker Podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You are an incredibly unique guest compared to the other guests that we've had on the show so far. And I can say without a doubt that I've never had a one-on-one conversation with a futurist, and I couldn't be more fired up to talk about the future. And... I guess what I thought of right off the bat when we were going to have this conversation is what does a futurist do? Really, the point of being a futurist is to pull together all the trends and the science and the culture and everything that I see going on around me and then help people think about what that might mean eight to 10 years from now. And that, to me, is the is sort of the sweet spot of being a futurist. The other two components that I really want to talk about today are the insurance industry specifically and how Mm -hmm. you view the future of insurance. And then I would love to go through a few highlights from your uh, brand new book, Email from the Future, Notes from 2084. So if those sound like two topics, we uh, we can dive in from there. That sounds great. Okay, cool. So insurance in the future. Do you have any ideas off the top of your head of what, how you think the insurance industry will change? 
Yes, I do. And I spent a lot of time with the insurance industry, all aspects of it, from brokers to reinsurers to you know, the major carriers. Uh, and uh, I think partly they're interested in futurists because the insurance ind companies are about the future. I mean, they're about analyzing the past, of course, in terms of actuarial data, but it really is about predicting the future in many ways. So, uh, so I, you know, always have a good time talking with the insurance companies. Yeah. And of course, yeah. I think uh, several things are coming along in terms of this this decade that are going to <clears throat> really. Well, let me, let me start with sort of a, a broad observation, which is that yeah. coming out of the COVID pandemic, um, the one thing, interestingly enough, very often when pandemics and society takes an interesting and you know really progressive step forward uh, like after the black death in europe it was the renaissance in scientific medicine mm -hmm. you know, after the spanish flu in 1918 it's kind of interesting the spanish flu killed more men than it did women and a lot of the men were off at war so women were were really major players in helping get us through the Spanish flu. And it was two years after that, that the United States decided to give women the vote. And those were connected. So what will, when we come out of COVID, what will we have? What will historians look back and say, this pushed us? And I think yeah. it's pushed yeah. us into this, what I call the virtualization of the world, which is something that was going on. You know, which is that more and more of how we work and shop and learn and beat our mates is going into the cybersphere. Uh, that was happening, but COVID pushed us forward five years. There's just no doubt about it. We got pushed five years ahead. The things that I would have said, oh, that'll be in 2026, 2027, they're starting to happen now. And, um, we weren't really ready for it. The technology wasn't quite ready for it. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I always say, you know, the big impact is that now everyone over 40 in the United States knows how to unmute themselves on Zoom. <laughs> That's a big... <laughs> so, yeah, that is true. So, and we've entered into this new world where we're much more comfortable with the virtual world. So for insurance, that is going to mean things, uh, a number of things. First of all, the, you know, the, the whole work at home phenomenon is going to affect insurers in two ways. One is redefining what the workforce is, because there's certainly a lot of work that can be done remotely in the insurance industry. Yep. Definitely. And, uh, a lot of my clients uh, may, may, may say that they'd like to bring all the workers back to the physical office, but the fact is that's not going to happen for a couple reasons. One, uh, companies are realizing that uh, they don't need all that floor space, especially in an expensive city like Los Angeles or New York. Mm -hmm. uh, gosh, if you want to work at home for a few days out of the week, that's just fine. Yeah. I've got a smaller floor plate in my next uh, next office build out. Totally. Uh, and the second thing is younger 
workers, especially the younger workers who have the kinds of sophisticated skills that insurance companies want, they're pretty interested in not commuting every day. Um, you know, sometimes I joke that 50 years from now, uh, there'll be a trivia contest. And one of the questions will be, what was a rush hour? <laughs> the audience will have no idea. They'll go, rush hour? I have no idea. So then we'll explain to them what rush hour was. Uh -huh. And they'll say, wait a minute. Everybody got up at the same time, got in their cars at the same time, and then drove in the same direction? <laughs> That's nuts. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So. One of my favorite movies is Rush Hour. Actually, Rush Hour 1 and Rush Hour 2. <laughs> exactly. And <laughs> those will be curiosities. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Years so um, so this, this whole work at home thing that creates two levels of questions for parts of the insurance industry, at least. The, the first is, how do you have a distributed workforce and still you know, have some sort of sense of you know, corporate belonging? Of, yeah, company culture. Yeah, all of that stuff. Yep. And you know, that's something that the HR people are really working hard on now. That's a, that's a complicated one. And it's, it's not at all clear how we're going to do that. There's some interesting ideas. My favorite phrase, maybe you've run across this phrase, digital campfire. Have you heard that? No, I haven't heard that. That was a, uh, coined in a Harvard Business Review article about a year ago. And it suggested that what companies need is, quote, digital campfires. And it's a little like the, the water cooler, right? The uh -huh. place that you can hang out without actually doing business. And the digital campfire idea is that, you know, when we sit around a campfire, uh, we're there ostensibly to stay warm or to have light, but we don't really have to do anything. So we have all this time to talk to each other, right? Mm -hmm. So there's this nice social thing. How do you create that in the digital world? Uh, and there's that's an interesting question. Uh, one, one idea, for example, this is sort of wild, but uh -huh. The closest thing you can think of in, in many ways is, you know, is watching gamers on Twitch, um, you know, because yeah. you're watching, but you're in a social network and, you know, you're talking to people. I mean, you know, guys meet girls watching, you know, but they, ostensibly you're watching the gamer, yeah. but actually you're having a conversation. So how do you create something like that for the office? And I don't, I don't know if anyone's come up with that yet, but you know, you know that the people at places like Slack are uh, working on really hard. Totally. So I, I'd say, Michael, we, we actually had one interesting exploration of that during the pandemic. We had a virtual wine tasting for the company that yeah, incorporated, uh, it's like for newer employees, it was like a family day. And so like, if mm -hmm. you, you include your family member, your significant other, and Based on what you're saying, it didn't include like a complete element where, you know, someone could just start. I mean, it had to be organized and it had to be set up in a way where people weren't talking over each other. So you couldn't necessarily have like a one-off individual conversation, but you could comment and you could style, you could raise your hand and all that stuff. But that was, that was likely our most successful virtual event along with our virtual retreat 
that we did during 2020, but by no means was it perfect. No, but that's interesting because you were sharing a physical object, right? The yes. wine. Yes. So you had that connection. Uh, so that that may be a clue is to have some physical commonality that gets delivered to the home that then becomes part of the event. I like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, the other flip side of this for at least uh, some of the, the uh, workers comp carriers and some of the other insurers is the whole question of what responsibility companies have for workers at home ranging from ergonomics to other kinds of workplace safety to harassment. Uh, I spent literally uh, almost a day with a group of lawyers uh -huh. uh, out in California talking about all of these issues. And they were um, the defense bar because they, they see the lawsuits coming um, yeah. and are just trying to figure out, you know, what employers may or may not be responsible for. And it's it's an interesting question because we really are pushing, you know, costs and responsibilities onto employees that, that they didn't used to have. And so far, I think to a great extent, just the freedom of getting to stay at home has sort of, you know, over overcome the 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 difficulties that that may, you know, additional costs, et cetera. Yeah. That, that, employee might be encountering. But once work at home or hybrid work becomes standard, there's going to be sort of a new workers' rights set of questions, I think. Yeah. And that, that's yeah. an interesting one. And again, insurance will be involved. Uh-huh. That's that's a very, very interesting one. And I think right now it's almost like a lot of times people see it as a benefit to work from home. And it's just the increased freedom, like you said, I would think would lead to less liability from the standpoint of the company, but who knows if that if that changes and that once that becomes normalized. It's a really interesting topic. Um, go ahead. Yes. So the insurance, you know, it, it, it's interesting to me, and we've talked about this before. the The insurance world in general is tending to get caught at the front of new technologies that aren't completely figured out yet. Perhaps the government hasn't passed laws yet. We don't have really, as in the case of work at home, we don't have firm you know, rules, et cetera, that have evolved over time. Uh, and it's the insurance industry that has to look at these things and, and sort of figure out what the risks might be. Mm -hmm. As with, with accelerating technology, that means you know you cannot rely on an actuarial understanding of the past to to really lead you into the future uh, when these new technologies come along. Yeah, um, you had a line, Michael, when I was looking up your background around how insurance can help drive legitimate technological change more than regulation can or something along those lines. Yeah. Can you clarify that? Yes. Um, there are two examples that I've run across in the last couple of years. Um, the, the first one is autonomous self-driving cars uh, that you know, two or three years ago, 
there was even more enthusiasm about how quickly these cars would be running around our cities. And some states actually seeing big pots of Google money possibly coming their way uh, had you know fairly loose right said that they'd have fairly loose regulations on self-driving cars. And I remember talking to my friends in the automobile insurance business and property and casualty. And you know, they've been thinking, they've been thinking about self-driving cars for a while and actually have thought it pretty well through. And you know, ultimately there's there's a business model there for them because there's liability there somewhere and somebody's got to be covered. So yeah. But uh, they said, in terms of insuring an autonomous vehicle now, that they don't care what the states do in terms of approving them, because if you can't buy insurance for it, it's not going to be on the road anyway. Right, right, right. Wow, uh, then, that's a good analogy. And you had another one as well. Yeah. Oh, the other one that I'm really hopeful about, it's kind of a prediction, um, is cybersecurity. You know, we're just cybersecurity insurance has been around for a while. Uh, in the early days, my impression is that it, it was a it was hard to write these policies because mm -hmm. what's your liability? You go from zero to you know a fifty million dollar to a billion dollar company going under because of this, right? Uh -huh. We're on the lines. And on the side of the, uh, the companies, you know, they said the policies were written in a way that it's not really clear that they're going to pay off, et cetera, et cetera. So there was sort of going back and forth. Then I think in the last couple of years with the new, new realization of just how important cybersecurity is, boards of directors are starting to say, wait a minute, we're covered for every other loss. Why are we not covered for cybersecurity? Oh, yeah. And the insurance companies are saying, huh, there's, we're missing some opportunities here. So I think what may evolve over this decade is a, is a situation a little like the early days of workers' comp insurance. When early part of the 20th century, there were lots of workplace accidents and um, the federal government said, okay, we can't keep having factory workers get injured at this rate, but we don't want to step in and run the whole business. So they invented workers comp in which case you are covered for workers compensation as long as you keep a safe workplace up to, you know, certain standards yep. set. It was an enormous revolution in workplace safety. It was a, it was brilliant. Um, you could imagine the same thing in cybersecurity insurance. In other words, the insurance industry goes and says, look, here are the things you have to do mm -hmm. if we're going to insure you. And it's a best practices sort of thing that the federal government could do, but doesn't want to do. So the insur insurance companies do it and everybody brings up their cybersecurity game significantly mm -hmm. uh, because they do want to get covered. Um, and I suspect that may turn out to be the way that cybersecurity becomes a much more standard part of operation over the rest of this decade. Mm -hmm. I really like that. And I focus primarily in cybersecurity insurance specifically, and it's starting to go that way. Multi-factor authentication is actually becoming a, a just a minimum requirement for almost every single market out there 
when it comes to like the look, you have to have that minimum standard. Otherwise, you know, you're not even yeah. going to get a quote. So that that's definitely getting there, but it's like, you know, it, it still is the wild West in terms of cybersecurity right. controls. Like most people aren't, most small businesses aren't really doing much when it comes to pre putting preventative cybersecurity in place. Oh, it's, it's amazing. I mean, you hear about these big hacks, right? And the general public goes, oh my God, those genius cyber criminals, they're just everywhere. Yeah. And you talk to a good white hat hacker and tell them what happened and they go, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. Yeah. They hadn't updated the operating system in a year. Of course they got hacked. Yeah. Um, now, the other interesting thing about... <clears throat> Uh, that I think the insurance companies, because the insurance industry is going to really take to, and it's already starting, is artificial intelligence, machine learning, and predictive analytics. Okay. Is something that got pushed forward again, um, <clears throat> I think, by COVID. Uh, we already had really good machine learning technology starting around 2016, 2017. A lot of pieces of neural networking came together with the right kinds of uh, graphic processing units. And, um, you know, we're all of a sudden, after 60 years of promising people artificial intelligence, cognitive computing actually started to do some useful things. Um, indeed, often doing things that humans couldn't do that well. And so we're seeing that in, in law, in medicine, um, just, you know, just beginning, but the applications are, are obviously just tremendous. Mm -hmm. And for insurers, you know, that's, that's going to be a big plus, uh, and in a sense, that's, that's, I think, the step that will help them possibly take, you know, actuarial data into the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, that has potential to have exponential change within the insurance world. I'm curious, Michael, do you foresee any new products that don't exist right now that you think will exist from an insurance standpoint in like the next 50 years? Is there any anything that comes to mind that you think is just going to be like, you know what? Every business is going to need to purchase this. It's just a matter of time. Uh, that's that's interesting. <clears throat> I mean, certainly cyber ins security insurance fits into that. Yeah. Um, Agreed. And, uh, yeah. And I think we may even see that on the personal level. Um, you know, that may be part of homeowner's insurance. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, totally agree with that as well. Yeah, no. we yeah we've we've there's I I would say we've done a we've done some research into the the personal cyber products that exist and they're pretty bare bones really based around identity theft at the moment so there's plenty of iterations that can be done to make those yeah, products more comprehensive. I was, yeah, it's interesting. I was recently um, working with uh, Cedia, C E D I A, which uh -huh. is a group that does high-end audio video installations. They're the ones who do, you know, screening rooms in Hollywood and mm -hmm. so forth. Um, and lately they've been doing more and more uh, IT work as well because, you know, obviously it's all of a piece right now. Yeah. Intelligent home, the audio video system, and the whole IT system. And for high network, high net worth or, you know, very public clients, 
you know, they do very sophisticated computer security packages with guarantees of security, um, which is, is interesting. Mm-hmm. It's turned out to be a, a lucrative part of the business. Yeah. Michael, how do you feel about technology taking over jobs from human beings? Do you, I'm sure you get this question a lot, but I know some people have more like a pessimistic view. Some people have an optimistic view and how, you know, occupations could potentially change to becoming more artistic or more, um, I guess, based around emotions, which obviously, you know, machines Mm -hmm. do not have. How do you see technology taking over jobs? Do you see it in an optimistic way? And then the third piece of that is, which jobs do you think are the first to go? That's a great question. And that's actually sort of following up on the whole cognitive computing Uh piece, Um, which is that with cognitive computing for the first time, we're getting good at automating white collar jobs. And, you know, I see examples of that now. And for example, law, Uh, with smart software, you can do many of the tasks that entry-level lawyers used to do. You know, the old saying is that they uh, <clears throat> they don't teach you to practice law in law school. So you end up, you get to a firm, you're an associate, right? And you sort of, they, they let you do research and contract drafting and discovery for the first few years. So you're creating billable hours for them, right? But you're not meeting clients and causing any problems. <laughs> so, so that was the traditional model for years and years and years. But now it turns out that with cognitive computing software, you can do a lot of those things like contract drafting and research and discovery um, mm. much more cheaply and better electronically, simply using IT. And one of my favorite examples of that is you see, you know, e-discovery software, discovery being the process where you go through, you know, all of the evidence that potentially goes into a trial. And in white collar crimes, that used to be like whole conference rooms full of, you know, boxes full of vanilla folders. Now it's enormous amounts of email and documents and so forth. Uh, but still, you have to go through those and figure out what you're going to take to trial. That's what the young associates used to do. Um, now you can do that with e-discovery and it goes through all the documents and comes up and says, here's the things a human ought to look at. And my favorite example of one of the ways that e-discovery works is that it, computers have turned out to learn that when you're in a big company and you're writing a memo or an email that you really don't want the feds to hear about, that's <laughs> going over the line a little bit, Okay, your grammar improves. Nobody knows why, but you begin to make complete sentences and putting in periods and commas, you know, the, where they belong. Wow. Um, and it's statistically significant. And it's a computer that figured that out. Weird. So now eDiscovery software goes through all the documents, right, in a company and everyone's documents, it assigns each person a, you know, a grammar uh, score from zero to 10. Mm-hmm. Then it goes back through and looks at each person's stack, individual stack of emails and documents. Mm-hmm. And if all of a sudden a person who's grammatical two jumps up to grammatical eight, 
the computer pulls that document out and says, something's going on here, a human better look at this. Mm-hmm. Now, that's amazing. Uh, of course, all the bad guys have to do now is uh, just keep it ungrammatical all the time. <laughs> yeah, just speak informally. But the computer will figure that out too. So in other words, that and now we're already seeing, at least in New York, situations where I talk to, you know, classic old white shoe law firms that are saying, you know, we're not quite sure what to do with our associates anymore. They're becoming a cost center, <laughs> not a profit. Uh-huh. So, so that's an example to answer a long, a long answer to uh, your question. It, basically, I'm both optimistic and pessimistic. Okay. But actually, reverse order. Pessimistic first, because I, I, along with a lot of economists, we're starting to think that this time automation is different. Traditionally, mm-hmm. automation takes jobs away and then creates new jobs. And we've seen that, you know, ever since the mechanization of farming. Mm-hmm. But this time may be different because we're replacing a lot of white collar jobs, too. Yeah. I was just speaking with uh, the co-founder and CEO of one of the fastest growing insurance agencies in the U.S. His name is Spike Lipkin and his company, they just got a $2 billion valuation. But he was talking about, because he he was the founder of this company and he was talking about how he believed in the future of the insurance industry and the future of the insurance brokerage because a lot of people, I guess, when he was thinking about getting into it, were comparing insurance agencies to like a travel agent and how mm-hmm. when you deal with the travel agent, he said that that type of white collar job was more replaceable because everybody knows what a plane is, what a plane ticket is, you know, and what a seat is and can wants to be relatively in control of managing their own logistics. But Insurance is very different because you're dealing with a very complex 100-page product with lots of legal language in there that most people don't want to go through and figure out. And there's lots and lots of differences in a single product line when you have 20 markets that have iterations on that product. Like the cyber insurance is comparable. But but yeah, it's it was interesting hearing him talk about that and how he he was believing that you know, there's no no worry for the retail brokerage in terms of if, if you know, computers were to replace their job, at least in the near future. Well, that's interesting. And I think I think he's on to something there, which is what the new jobs will be. Uh, <clears throat> because I, I do believe that, I mean, I, I actually sometimes I use insurance as an example of uh, the kind of skills that we're going to need to bring and teach kids to bring to the workplace. And one of those is empathetic communication, not just communication, although that's a good one too. But the thing that is unique compared to a computer is this empathetic piece. Because I I have to say that the work that I'm seeing in robotized consumer, you know, customer service representatives, uh, the way that bots are evolving very quickly, I could see, you know, five or eight years from now, uh, a a bot may be pretty good at telling you a lot of the basics of what's involved in in an insurance policy. Yeah. Right. 
But I think it's still going to be a human with empathetic communication who calls or emails or Zooms later to say, how many kids do you have again? Yeah, hmm, well, starts a little conversation, ends up, you know, maybe you should go for the million dollar policy, you know? Uh-huh. And it's the human that makes that sale. It's not the bot. Interesting. So that's the distinction I see. And I, I believe that those are the jobs that we will have. There'll be jobs that need empathetic communication, that need a collaboration skills. Okay. Because that's one thing AI does not do well. There's actually work going on on trying to get individual artificial intelligence units to collaborate. It's not working. Uh-huh. Uh, and the final one is open-ended problem solving. In other words, solving a problem that you can't just look up on Google. Um, that and makes those, sense. You know, we used to teach the three R's. I think we're going to have to teach the three C's: <laughs> communication, collaboration and creativity uh, to sort of robot proof the next generation. Yeah. So so that leads me to the optimistic part, which is, you know, these are going to be interesting jobs. They will be, as you said, exactly. They'll be more involved with the emotions. They'll be involved with what it is to be human. And uh, that's great. Well, I think that's a really good transition into some of the content that is in your new book which is based in the perspective of an individual from Gen Z, which I thought was really interesting, um, in 2084, in him writing almost like a, it seems like a letter to his grandson. Mm-hmm. And he's um, essentially, it, the, the, everything that you're putting in the book is, is, um, going through the developments from really right around now until 2084, it seems. Can you give us some highlights of the content that's in the book of some of the major predictions that you are making? Well, the the first important thing that happens in the book is out towards the end of the 20s, the... uh, there is enough severe extreme weather worldwide, all at the same time, Mm -hmm. that it creates almost a cultural change in the human species all of a sudden, because by then we're all much more connected by the internet than we are today, um, with the possible exception of, you know, totalitarian countries that are shut off. But most of the free world will be, you know, pretty solidly connected. I mean, you could argue right now that the, I've heard people say the, the, the 10-year-old uh, or the 14-year-old in Kansas City probably has more in common with a 14-year-old in South Korea than he does with a 25-year-old living across the street from him because that younger generation is so global. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Hip-hop. <laughs> um, so that's the first thing that happens. And yeah. then there's yeah. essentially a global strike and there's a shift by the governments into taking climate change much more seriously. Uh-huh. And, um, and it turns out that we have most of the tools to actually take carbon out of the atmosphere, 
to regreen, to do all the things that we need to do. Plus, and actually this is where the insurance industry comes in in the book, okay. Um, okay. To because even if we get the carbon down pretty quickly, we're still going to have extreme weather and these effects for decades to come. So the other part of the book is about building resilience, moving people away from areas that we know are going to be repeatedly flooded, uh, and creating whole new, uh, you know, building standards that mm -hmm. uh, can get us through this severe weather. Interestingly enough, uh, you know, there are insurance R&D groups now that are looking at what sorts of roof tiles they should recommend uh, so that they can actually, you know, write policies for areas that may have severe wind problems. Yeah. So yeah, like that. Cool. So, I got to say, Michael, I, so I'm a few chapters into your book. And one thing that really stood out to me was the concept of your double, which is right. like your, your software, like the, the data makeup of you in like a software form. And that really hit me because I'm really into tracking my fitness via like my whoop fitness tracking band that tracks like a bunch of metrics when it comes to your heart rate. And I'm, and I, I remember I, I literally went to, I'm a Kaiser member. I went to my doctor. I'm like, I cannot believe that this information is not like being tracked by my healthcare provider. Um, you know what I'm saying? Right. So anyways, I, I just wanted to pause really quick on that because that concept was like so logical to me. Oh, when I talk to medical groups, that's, <clears throat> you know, I lay that out and everybody says, yes, that's, that's where it's got to go. Yeah. It's one of these things that, you know, if you, I mean, as you said, the, you know, the, it's just amazing what devices can do now in terms of tracking your uh, physiology. I mean, a new Apple watch is yeah. just so sophisticated and we're only, we've only been doing this for a few years. Yeah. The idea that this information gets uploaded combined with your whole genome scan, yeah. uh, which will be done for sure, combined with the readings from all the other people in the country that are your age and approximately in your same situation. And it all gets put together and uh, literally could produce warnings that uh, here's, here's a health problem yeah. you may have in the next three months and you should do something about it. And do, Michael, do you see any reason it, why, like for example, like this whoop, fitness tracker or like the Apple watch, why in the future that wouldn't just be like implanted into your body? Um, the one, the one interesting thing about implanting in the body is that it's still surgery and it's still hard to find materials that you can put in the body that, um, that will stay there and not cause unforeseen problems. Okay. So, um, my, all the work that I'm seeing is non-invasive ways to measure everything. And this includes, you know, contact lenses that analyze your teardrops, um, sweat. Turns out sweat has got just a lot of indicators in it. Huh. So, so there's a lot of interest in doing things that are not invasive. Okay. Because as soon as you do the invasive thing, um, you know, it's got to go through the FDA. You More probably risk, have yeah. a licensed practitioner who's got to implant it. And it's beginning to turn out that we can learn an awful lot 
about the human body just from the outside. Yeah, that's a really interesting topic. Yeah. Okay, any other major highlights of the book that you want to give people a preview of if they are going to go and read it? Well, I think the, the other interesting piece of it is that I think the population of the United States is going to get redistributed. And I sort of see a time that the Midwest becomes, you know, a much more populated area. Than, really? Yes. And it's interesting. I've sort of predicted that for a while, and it's going to be led by a, a few things. One is the cost of living on the coasts. Uh, also, some of the extreme weather that we're seeing on the coasts that is not necessarily the same in the Midwest. Uh -huh. um, <clears throat> so I think we'll see a more of a distribution of our population uh, over the next uh, 10 to 50 years. I do a little portrait of New York in uh, 2065. And uh, the, you know, my hero actually is a kid who's 10 years old now in Brooklyn, um, goes back to New York. And the things that amaze him most are the subway cars, because they've switched the subway from its current system to maglev, which is the technology where quite well established, where the train actually floats above the tracks on a little magnetic field. Wow. The subways are silent. All you hear is the rush of air as you go along. So that's super cool. So you're saying that technology is already, already around. Mm -hmm. If you go to Shanghai, yeah. you can take the maglev train in from Shanghai Airport to downtown, and it. And then at one point, it's at 350 miles an hour, uh -huh. and it, passes the train that's going the other way at 350 miles an hour. Oh my so gosh. the passage is like this. Oh it's my amazing. gosh. Maglev, ask for it by name. That sounds really <laughs> epic. <laughs> well, so, okay, so in Midwest, you're saying cost of living, you're saying natural disasters around the coast. Mm -hmm. um, is there any other factors that would push people to the Midwest? Um. Those will be the main ones, that and the fact that I think once we have this sort of working from home thing going, um, people are going to be, there still be people who love to be in the cities, but there will be more people who actually like to be in what in the book is called walkables, mm -hmm. towns, cities that are maybe 10,000 people where most everything can be walked to. And because everything is so digitally connected, you know, living in the Midwest will no longer be like, you know, going to Siberia. Yeah. Uh, the, there'll be VR rigs set up in all the Broadway theaters in New York that, uh -huh. you know, broadcast live virtual reality, you know, very real VR uh, shows to anybody who wants to sit in on them, whether yeah. they're in the West or wherever. Um, so they'll be, I think we'll be returning, um, to, uh, a less urban environment than we have now. Interesting. I love the idea of the walkable. I am in my current neighborhood in San Francisco because it is so walkable. Yeah. It's very, I, I, and that's why I moved from my old neighborhood because I had to, I had to drive everywhere to get anything. And now I'm like bars, restaurants, 
um, just convenient, convenient social meetups and um, everything just is, is right around me, which I find so convenient. It's, it's much more human scale. Um, yeah. 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 Cool. Well, Michael, I know we're kind of coming up on the hour here and we always end with five rapid fire questions. But before I go into those, if there is anybody listening to this, that's interested in reading one of your books, your new book, that's interested in hearing you speak or wants to learn more, where should they find you? Is there a website or should they follow you on Twitter? What, what do you recommend? Easiest is to just go to michaelrogers.com. Perfect. That's my website and then all the socials, everything is there too. Okay. And that's michaelrogers.com. Exactly. Cool. Okay. Nice. Well, with that said, I will jump into these five rapid fire questions. My first question is kind of based around what I asked you earlier about implantables, but I'm curious your thoughts on this one. I've heard about Elon Musk's Neuralink. Do you think eventually humans and robots will merge? Um, <clears throat> yeah, yes and no. I think, again, that question of implantables is, is a serious one. Yeah. And we may find that as sophisticated as we get, for decades to come, people don't particularly want to be operated on. But I do think we will have better ways of sort of picking up brain waves. And so I ultimately, we will have parts of our bodies that are indeed somewhat robotic in many cases. I mean, especially starting out, you know, with, uh, you know, people with disabilities. Yeah. We're already seeing a lot of things being made for, you know, additional walking capabilities, uh, grasping capabilities. Um, and some of that will end up being adopted by, um, by the rest of us. But I think we will always make a real distinction between the artificial intelligence and the real intelligence. And that's something I go into some uh, detail on in the book that... Uh, that there, there, always, there will always be this distinction that to truly be conscious, a conscious human, requires a physical body and a sense of mortality. Mm. And you can't really give that to a robot. True, true. I always like the idea of the Luke Skywalker arm where he's got almost like a, almost like a more powerful arm yeah. that's um, robotic. So mm -hmm. it's really, and it, you know, and you see, you know, different athletes like that have the um, prosthetics on their legs it, and, you know, how, how fast they can be with those. It's amazing to see where that's going. Yeah. Uh, okay, cool. So that's question number num one. Question number two, you may hit on this in the book, but I have not gotten there yet if you do. Do you think that we are going to inhabit Mars by 2084. We will have been there as humans, but <clears throat> because we have so much work to do cleaning up the planet, our own planet, yeah. we will be spending much more money there. And I think as we get better at robotics, we're going to find that sending really smart 
capable, functional robots to Mars makes more sense than sending a human. Because I have an example of, you know, you send a really great, smart humanoid robot that can swim and fly to Mars and connect it with, you know, full VR gear for transmitting. And 50 scientists in the United States can put on VR gear and swim and walk and fly through Mars looking yeah. around. And that makes a lot I, of sense. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, this kind of applies to that situation. Do you think, and this is a ridiculous question, but do you think that an Arnold, Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator situation is possible? Like, could the machines turned on us? That's, that's an interesting question. And it's one that, you know, everyone, including Elon Musk worries about. Uh-huh. Uh, I think that it's, that's possible that that could happen accidentally. I'm not certain that we're going it accidentally because we have programmed robots to do something that turns out to be bad for our whole species, right? Mm-hmm. But it's, it would be our programming. I'm of the school that thinks that we're really not going to have artificial intelligence that suddenly is capable of thinking to itself, you know, I'm smarter than these humans. I should be running their lives. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think AI is going to create that kind of thought. Uh, So probably unless we're really careless, we will have time to unplug them before they get out of control. (laughs) That's comforting. (laughs) Okay. I'm glad I asked. Fourth question. What piece of technology will be most game-changing for our future in the next 100 years? <laughs> well, in, in terms of game-changing, um, it's interesting to note. I mean, we've been living off kind of the inventions of the 20th century, you know, genetic engineering, the internet, personal computers, all those things came basically from the 70s, the 1970s. And we haven't had big breakthroughs since. I have a couple that I suggest in the book. One is that we may begin to figure out some ways to slightly modify time. We may understand time in a better way. We may not do time travel, but we may begin to have the ability to shift things in time slightly. Mm. I'm not quite sure where that goes. The book talks about it quite a bit. Okay. Okay. Second piece is interesting to me that I think we discount is materials. Materials are really things that change the way we live. You know, plastics the Bronze Age. Uh, so I think material science could be creating, you know, incredible kinds of new materials, you know, glass that conducts electricity, that automatically darkens itself, that creates, you know, electricity on its own, um, super solid kinds of carbon fibers that let us, as in the book, build a space elevator that mm-hmm. literally let take an elevator to the orbital plane around the earth. Um, So materials are one of those things that nobody thinks is real sexy compared to genetic engineering or computers, but really change our lives. Cool. Okay. Final question for you, Michael. This is also a ridiculous question. (laughs) 
should I be investing in cryptocurrency right now? <laughs> uh, that That's pretty easy to answer, I think. <laughs> and the answer, answer is definitely not. But <laughs> okay. You know, okay. I, I, it, I went to an unnamed Western state recently, okay. consulted with them because they wanted to be the cryptocurrency uh, capital of the United States. Wow, really? And basically the way they were going to do that was to lower all the legislative bars that are keeping people from using cryptocurrency in fraudulent ways. Um, so I said, you know, if I wanted to make a fortune in cryptocurrency, what I would invest in is cryptocurrency security systems. Mm. Blockchain security, we don't really know anything about it. Yeah. But blockchain and kinds of cryptocurrency that grow out of that are going to be hugely important. Smart contracts, all of that. Yeah. Uh, to me, where I would be putting my money is not in the cryptocurrency itself, but in the security systems around it. Because remember, the great fortunes in San Francisco, where you live, uh -huh. that came from the gold rush were not the gold miners. It was the people who sold them picks, shovels, and blue jeans. That's genius. Levi Strauss. <laughs> yeah, Levi Strauss. Levi's Plaza, we might actually be moving to a WeWork in Levi's Plaza. So I'm glad that you mentioned that. Well, Michael, it has been a pleasure. This has been a very, very interesting conversation. And frankly, I feel like I could go for like two more hours just picking your brain on random stuff, but I want to respect your time. So thank you so much for coming on. If you're ever out in San Francisco, I would love to catch up with you in person. Do not hesitate to reach out. And okay. uh, with that said, we will wrap this up right here. Terrific. Thank you. I've enjoyed it tremendously. Good questions. Thanks, Michael. Please download, subscribe, and leave a review on whatever platform you are listening on. And feel free to reach out to me at pat at evolvedbrokerpodcast.com with any comments or suggestions for the podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by First Insurance Funding. First is the leading premium finance company in insurance and is known throughout the industry for their personalized service and quote flexibility. If you're tired of sending quote requests for smaller premiums to multiple companies, not leaving enough time to negotiate larger opportunities, then choose FIRST as your primary financing source and experience the FIRST difference today. 